Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, welcome to the show. Just a little heads up, there are a couple instances of marital violence in this episode, as well as substance abuse. So adults, you may want to preview this before you let the little ears in on it. We, of course, keep everything as PG as possible, but they're listening. That's up to you. Also, we recorded the first two sections as tornadic storms were coming through the area. So in addition to our connection being dropped, you won't hear any of that, but it was. Um, there's a little audio difference between the two of us, which corrects itself in section three. But I just wanted to give you notice that, yes, we're aware of it. There isn't anything we can do about it. And that's why it's there. But we're safe and sound. And neither of us lost our power. Okay. Hello. And welcome to the show. Today, we are going to go back in to the life of Elizabeth Taylor. And uh, we should probably give you a little recap, though. We really recommend, as always, that you go back and listen to section one before (laughs) you listen to this episode. But in case you're driving or otherwise occupied and cannot go back, here's a little recap. Elizabeth Taylor hit the movie screen at age nine. It was an immediate superstar. We followed her through her child acting years, her easy leap into adult roles. We've got her up to her second marriage, her first one, very young, very fast marriage to Nikki Hilton, her second marriage to actor Michael Wilding. This one produced two children. We've followed her career, which has not gone down at all. It just keeps soaring even higher and higher. And when we left Elizabeth last, she was mourning the death of her friend James Dean in a car accident. And then she helped save Montgomery Cliff's life when he was in a car accident. So Elizabeth Taylor and Rock Hudson were able to leave their marks in concrete in the Grauman's Chinese Theater sidewalk. James Dean would have been there, but alas, he had perished in his car accident. So Elizabeth Taylor's career was looking up. She was getting more and more offers. She was more and more in the limelight. Her public life was going gangbusters. But her private life was sort of falling apart. About the same time that Elizabeth was getting her very first Academy Award nomination for her work on the movie Rain Tree County, that's the one she was working on with Montgomery Clift when he got into his car accident, her marriage just dissolved. She divorced Michael Wilding, that's husband number two, um, and there didn't seem to be any animosity at all. They had just been growing apart. Their interests were diverging like sometimes they do. In fact, she said the following of him. He was one of the nicest people I have ever known. But I'm afraid I gave him rather a rough time. I sort of henpecked him and probably wasn't mature enough for him. You know what? Clear eyes are good to look Mm -hmm. back. They just parted ways. They had children together. They would always be in each other's lives to some degree. But via con Dios, Michael Wilding, husband number two. And within an extremely short period of time, Elizabeth Taylor married producer and I guess the word might be impresario, <laughs> Mike Todd. They were married by the mayor of Acapulco. Why not? You know what I think of when I think of the word Acapulco? Children mm-hmm. of the 70s. Can you say it with me? The love, love boat. boat. <laughs> they were always docking it. Acapulco. 
I wanted to be a cruise director so bad because Julie's life just seems so exotic and fantastic and on the move and doing creative stuff. And yeah. The only reason I was allowed to see the love boat, I mean, I was too young to watch the love boat, but my parents were in the symphony and the whatever night the love boat was on was a symphony performance night. And the babysitters always let me watch love boat in <laughs> fantasy Island, another show I had no business watching. <laughs> well, I watched them um, as I was getting ready to go out. <laughs> there you go. As I have a few years on you. The day after her divorce from Michael Wilding was final, Mike Todd, who Elizabeth knew professionally, she knew him from Hollywood parties. One day he called her in for a meeting. He was producing a film called Around the World in 80 Days on this curved movie projection system of his own invention. And she thought he was asking her in to talk business. Oh, no. He was asking her in to profess his love and eternal devotion to her. He's 49. She is 24. His oldest son was three years older than she was. But he had this strong wild salesman kind of personality that just sucked her in. And she was on board right from the beginning. This man has such an interesting career trajectory. He started as a construction guy whose main work in Hollywood was soundproofing old silent movie studios to make them suitable for the talkies. Oh, I love that. Remember when we covered Mary Pickford, how we were talking about how they used to play these games while filming was happening? They got in some very bad habits they had to unlearn when the talkies came about. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, this is another man who loses fortunes and then gains fortunes. I know these are bold decision makers, but to me, I would be so stressed out all the time. Oh. No kidding. At the time that Elizabeth met him was actually a Broadway producer. So that film technique for widescreen that Susan referred to is called Todd AO. I know we've all seen it. Um, so it's Mike Todd and it's Todd AO. And it appears sometimes in the, um, if you stay through the whole credits, it'll appear at the end as a logo on movies of a certain era. You know what I'm saying? Uh -huh. He had also gone on to become a movie producer in his own right. Let's just say at this point, when he met Elizabeth, he was printing money. And he had absolutely no problem spending it either. And he just took that big personality that he had and poured it into Elizabeth, just lavishing her with jewelry. And he jetted her around the world. And oh, within six months, she was pregnant. So while he was showering his new wife with material gifts, he also showered her with emotional ones too. You know that feeling when you're sitting at home and you're like, oh, I am thinking about this dive bar that we love and you text your spouse and say, oh, can you bring me some wings from the peanut? <laughs> and they happen to be passing it. And as a surprise, they order some peanut wings. They're not, they don't have peanut butter. The bar is called the peanut. They bring <laughs> wings home to you as a surprise. Okay. And you know how that feels? It's like you feel loved. You feel like, oh, he really is thinking about me or she, right. whichever. Right. Okay. So notably, she once mentioned, oh, I'm just thinking about that meal we had in Paris that time. It was so delicious. He literally got on the horn, 
called the guy on Paris who like prepared the same thing they had and he chartered a plane to bring no people but only the food from that restaurant to their house. It is like the longest DoorDash that has ever been invented. <laughs> but so it's the same exact sentiment as peanut wings, only on a larger scale. But so I'm just saying he had emotional exuberance also. He just happened to have deeper pockets. <laughs> <laughs> well, he wasn't all great. When she was giving birth to her daughter, Liza, she had to have a C-section. While she was unconscious, the doctors told him that Elizabeth was a very fragile woman and that she could not survive carrying another child to term. Uh, Mr. Todd, is it okay if we perform a tubal ligation on her? Sure. So when Elizabeth wakes up, she finds out that she can never have children again because he, I, I, it was, he didn't even talk to her about it. It was just... Ugh, you know, well, I mean, I don't know the circumstances. You know, I just don't know if were they saying she wouldn't survive another surgery. Well, okay, that's when I had mine done. Is when I had a C section, but I knew it was going to happen. I planned for it. You know, we had talked about it, but I, I understand why he did it. You know, he's caught up in the moment. He doesn't want his wife to die. He doesn't want her to have to go through this again. They're there. Let's just do it fast and. On the other hand, she had no say in it. She wanted more children. Well, I would say I would blame the doctors over her husband in that incident. I uh, I'm giving him some credit because think about how think about how stressful all of that is. You know, he's there, he hasn't seen it. These guys come out possibly in blood-soaked yeah. aprons or whatnot, and, and it's you know, what are you going to do? It's a heightened emotional situation. And they tell you what needs to happen. And in that moment, you have 30 seconds. And I just don't know. I don't know that I would blame him forever. It is horrible that she was never asked for her opinion. I am not at all certain that wasn't extremely common for that decade, though. Oh, also. no. I mean, and yeah. just think of the number of African-American women specifically who had had tubal ligations without their permission for many, many years. So, yeah, it wasn't unusual. I don't know. I just thought it was kind of dirty. But no, it's kind of dirty, but I don't know that I would put the blame on Mike Todd is all situation. I'm saying. Oh, so I see. So situationally dirty. OK. OK. Yeah. 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 How many people are going to have a measured response to that? Like, mm, I don't know. Will she survive another? You know, I don't know. Yeah. No. OK. Moving on. I would like to redeem him, at least in Elizabeth's eyes, if not the general <laughs> public. OK. Just after the birth of little tiny Elizabeth, who, of course, everyone called Liza, just after she's recovered, Mr. Mike Todd decided to have a giant party to celebrate the first anniversary of his movie Around the World in 80 Days. He received an Academy Award for it. It was glorious, etc. He is going to have the world's biggest party. And it was sort of for his wife and it was sort of for his work. And it was sort of because like, whatever, you know, because mm -hmm. <laughs> I can. He had this party at Madison Square Garden. And he <laughs> and his wife invited 18,000 of their closest friends. And there was a giant cake, which was like 30 feet by 14 feet, made and donated by the Swans Down Flower Company. You know, the Swans Down Flower Company appears in so many of our episodes. And curiously, do they exist anymore? I just don't know. 
like maybe all this extravagance with these Madison Square Garden cakes are coming to roost because I don't know. <laughs> they lost Anymore. all their money on promotional <laughs> events. But there's an orchestra. There's an Oscar 24 feet high made out of 100,000 bronze colored chrysanthemums flown in on their own <laughs> private jets from all over the country. You know, Marilyn Monroe rode in on an elephant. There, I mean, it's just madness. It is just madness. He got a program on the radio called Playhouse 90 to dedicate an entire episode to this party. And it was narrated and hosted by a grumpy, reluctant, young Walter Cronkite. I am going to provide you a link with his displeasure at having been sent to cover this event because something happened. Okay. There was a lot of food donation. It's weird. <laughs> food, hot dogs, egg rolls, 4,000 pizzas, 15,000 donuts, a ton of baked beans, and then strangely, 200 gallons of vichyssoise. I mean, this is like, I hope there's Tom's also because this does not sound <laughs> yeah, oh awesome. Uncoordinated foods, big time. Wow. The whole thing was uncoordinated. Okay, so there's this level of Madison Square Garden, a balcony. They didn't have a lot of time to prepare. There was some kind of rodeo that happened until 2 p.m. And they only had from like 2 to 7 to set this up. Well, the people that had balcony tickets didn't have access to the floor and vice versa. Everyone's bewildered. Like, there's not enough entertainment. There's not enough focus. People don't know what they're supposed to be doing. Like, they just don't know. And there's hot dog vendors, or not vendors, givers, anyway, on the bottom floor. And the people in the balcony can't get any food. They can't <laughs> get anything. And so the hot dog vendors start throwing the hot dogs to the balcony. Well, <laughs> people are misunderstanding that. And then people start throwing the food. Mm. And then there's ladies in evening dress covered in ketchup. There's people suddenly slipping on melted ice cream. Pizzas are thrown through the air like Frisbees. It is embarrassing madness. It just descended into this massive food fight. It's on live radio. It is, hmm, it's not there's good. Uncle Walt in the middle of it all. <laughs> So unhappy. Time magazine called it mass gauchery. I'm going to bring that one back. <laughs> Things that I think are distasteful. I'll be like, that is gauchery. Mm-hmm. Bring that back. <laughs> Write it down. And a variety called it contagious disorganization. It was so not good. And then <laughs> when taxed with what had happened later, Mike Todd just said, oh, that was too many people. We'll invite 17,500 less next time. he didn't care he didn't pay for anything i think he only expended about thirteen thousand. he got cbs to pay for the broadcast and functionally for the renting of madison square garden he didn't care no skin (laughs) off his nose he didn't even pay for the cleanup (sighs) guy lived large well that was friends on a big scale but friends on a smaller scale on a more you know every friday night kind of scale were their best friends a gentleman named Eddie Fisher and his beautiful wife, Debbie Reynolds. They were so close. These were the people that stood up for them in their wedding. Elizabeth and Debbie, they knew each other from back when they were teenagers at MGM. Eddie Fisher adored Mike Todd. He wanted to be like Mike Todd. And they would come over and party at night. Something that Elizabeth and Mike did a lot was fight. And it was almost like foreplay for them. Can I say that on our PG-rated podcast? They would just get into these bitter, not just yelling at each other, like down-out, dragging, wrestling matches. 
One night, Eddie and Debbie were over for drinks and they got into one of these fights and Debbie wanted to get involved and get Mike off of Elizabeth. So she jumped on his back. So there's Debbie Reynolds trying to physically take Mike Todd off of Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, instead of being grateful, turns on Debbie and tells her not to do that. This is just the way that they are. And Debbie Reynolds, you know, sweet, innocent Debbie Reynolds is just like, wow. (laughs) You know, you ever see your friends fight? I remember the very first time, and I have a really, really good friend, let's call her T. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the first time, she knows who she is, if she's listening. Um, the first time I ever went to her house, she and her ha- husband had a um, verbal, not physical, like Elizabeth's, but a verbal fight about the paint color the painter had just painted the front porch and I thought oh lord do I need to leave out of here and they were both (laughs) smiling at me like oh look at her she's so uncomfortable (laughs) and they thought it was really sweet and cute that I was uncomfortable and I'm like I'm fixing to like my feet are cartooning in a circle I'm almost running out here (laughs) but to them it was just everyday business yeah well for Elizabeth Taylor and Mike Todd, it was everyday business. And then they made up just as spectacularly. I'm just going to leave it at that. Oh, it's exhausting. I couldn't take it. I couldn't take mm. it. I the, like they, too much equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they seem to thrive on it. Well, Elizabeth Taylor was filming Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with Paul Newman um, about now. This was her newest job. And um, she also, on the day that I'm about to tell you about, was sort of suffering from a cold and wasn't really feeling the travel. And Mr. Todd decided his wife is busy and she also doesn't feel like going out. He is going to head back to New York to handle some business and see some friends along the way. He was going to drop in to Independence, Missouri and see his friend Harry Truman, like you do. And Uh (laughs) yeah, Um, but the night before, as a little goodbye, because he was going to be like, okay, have a good week at work. I'll see you in a week or whatever. The night before he left to go on his, you know, New York, bye-bye, have a good week at work, honey. He covered their front yard with jewelry from Van Cleef and Arpels and told Elizabeth Taylor, pick whatever you want to keep and I'll send the rest back. His friend, Kirk Douglas, name dropping, his friend Kirk Douglas is like, you are setting the bar too high, my dude. You need to stop this right now. You're breaking my spirit. My wife is looking over here and he's like, hey, Kirk, come with me. My wife's not going. I'm taking my plane. It's a two-engine plane called the Lucky Liz. And Mrs. Douglas, Kirk Douglas's wife, said she had a bad feeling and asked him not to go. And he was very irritated. But as she was five or six months pregnant at the time, he's like, fine, fine. We will drive. We'll drive tomorrow. He was really mad. She said he slammed the door that night. Like, they didn't really speak. He had an opportunity to go on this private plane. Mm -hmm. Like, and go see Harry Truman and be a cool guy. And and because she had, quote, a feeling he was not going to go. All right, fine, whatever. So it was the next day, driving in his car with his wife, that Mr. Douglas heard on the radio that Mike Todd's plane had crashed and that there were no survivors. They pulled over to the side of the road. Kirk Douglas hugged his wife and said he would never dismiss her gut feelings again, and he apologized. Mm. Poor Elizabeth was having a rough night sleeping, and she was in bed, middle of the night, 
Her doctor and her secretary come flying into the room. She sat up by right and she knew exactly what had happened, that Mike had died. And she just started screaming. All she could do is just scream the word no. Like, no, 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 no. I can't imagine. To give, no, her doctor had to give her a shot to calm her down. But they were married for only 414 days. So a bit over a year. That's it. They lived all this living in 414 days. And now, tragically, it was ending. So she had to pull herself somewhat together for the funeral. And I am sorry to tell you, thousands of people thought it would be a great day out to go camp slash picnic at the cemetery ahead of this funeral so they could catch a glimpse of Elizabeth Taylor. They brought their little baskets they brought their children. They set up shop in this cemetery to looky-loo for the worst day of Elizabeth Taylor's life. And she is a grieving widow to extreme. The only thing that had survived the plane crash of Mike's was his wedding ring. And it was charred and black. And she slipped it on her finger. And she wore that ring for years because it was all she had left of him. Her friend, Howard Hughes, had given her a plane to go to the funeral, which was in Chicago. But when she's going to the cemetery, this mob is just attacking her car and trying to tip it. She can't even get out. But she sees across the way a little girl with a very sad face holding one flower. And Elizabeth has the car stop, rolls the window down, points to the little girl, told her to come over. And the little girl gave her the flower and Elizabeth told her, you're sweet. It's you I'll try to remember. Because what else? I mean, this tragedy and these people are trying to rip her damn clothes off at her husband's funeral. So she later said that she had two memories of the funeral. One was the little girl and the other was the crackling of the trash being blown by the wind from all the picnickers picnic baskets. Well, um, people sometimes forget that famous people are under it all people and need to have their feelings respected. Mm -hmm. Production on her movie did pause um, out of respect for her situation, but ultimately she had to go on. Racked by grief, everyone was very considerate of her feelings, but nevertheless, the show must go on. To the rescue, came one of her best girlfriends, Debbie Reynolds, mother of Princess Leah. <laughs> <laughs> now, remember, Debbie Reynolds is one of her closest girlfriends. They've known each other for years. She and her husband, Eddie Fisher, had only one month before had a little boy that they named Todd after Mike Todd. This is how close the friends were. She was the matron of honor at Elizabeth's wedding. She asked her husband, Eddie Fisher, can you please... Elizabeth needs you. She's flailing. Um, she needs somebody. Can you please go be her rock um, so she can lean on somebody? She she needs a friend. People are people are crazy. People are being out of control around her and not respecting her feelings or whatever. And so she sent her husband to go be with their friend and cheer her up. And much to the shock, anger, and it has to be said, titillation of the movie going public, Eddie Fisher and Elizabeth Taylor began an affair. As Carrie Fisher, a.k.a. Princess Leia, Debbie Reynolds' daughter, later put it in her one-woman stage show, and I quote, My father rushed to her side and gradually moved to her front. 
One day, Eddie was consoling Elizabeth in New York and Debbie, who at this point, people had been telling her something was up and she wanted it not to be that way. This was her friend and her husband. So she called up Elizabeth's hotel room and Eddie answered the phone. As the knowledge of this affair leaked out into the public eye, oh, oh, you have never seen something so polarizing. Debbie Reynolds was the innocent angel with a halo, and in fact, she was completely innocent in this affair. She also had small children. Uh, She was definitely the wronged party. The tabloids could not stop sympathizing with her, and, and they needed to. Conversely, Elizabeth Taylor got the opposite label. She's a homewrecker. She's, I hate this word, but it was printed, an S-L-U-T. Mm-hmm. Mm. And worst of all, in my mind, she's a betrayer of a very good friend. One of the worst scandals Hollywood had ever seen at this point. Now, Debbie Reynolds was devastated, of course, but what can you do? She preferred silence as her response. Both women, it must be said, benefited from the publicity in different ways. They were, um, how shall I say, this scandal was a box office fire starter for both of them. (laughs) One, because of people being on their side, and the other one's like, ooh, she is bad. Let's go see this movie, you know? And Mm -hmm. you know who actually got the blame and who should have probably gotten most of the blame. Eddie was pretty much canceled. We think that's a new phenomenon, but he really, his show was canceled. People turned their back on him in Hollywood. He was sort of reduced to going back out on the road with his uh, orchestra. His career was pretty much over at that point. They did not have the marriage that the MGM publicity department wanted you to believe. Debbie had actually filed for divorce twice before this. And even before she married him, Frank Sinatra told her not to do it. He told her that Eddie was going to cheat on her. And she was like, no, he's not. Well, yeah, he did. So they didn't have the greatest marriage. I think one super smart thing that Debbie did was go immediately to the MGM publicity department and ask them how she should play this out. You know, she wanted to be keep quiet and they took care of everything else. Right. But Elizabeth... (laughs) Gave an interview in which she said, what was I supposed to do? Sleep alone? I mean, like, Elizabeth, that is not cute. That yeah, is, no, Mike's dead. I'm alive. What do you want me to do? Yeah, uh, I know. Not good. But mm-hmm. Debbie, in contrast, said, I don't even think she cared about him. He was just a space filler. And then mm-hmm. she said, I never felt bitter about Elizabeth. A man doesn't leave unless he wants to go. And I am trying not to hate the father of my children. Like, she definitely seemed like the grown-up in this scenario. Mm -hmm. Coached or natural attribute, I I don't even think it matters. Debbie Reynolds came out of this looking like the bigger person. For real. About a year after Mike Todd's death, Elizabeth Taylor and Eddie Fisher were married just after his divorce was final. Like the next day, just after his divorce was final. Unseemly haste, one might say. Mm-hmm. Now, all of Elizabeth's work during these, I guess I'll call them the middle years, is getting her serious accolades. She received an Academy Award nomination for that Montgomery Clift movie from part one, Rain Tree County, for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which she filmed while grieving The year of the scandal, she starred in Suddenly Last Summer with Katherine Hepburn and got another nomination. And the year after that, she was cast as a call girl (laughs) in a movie called Butterfield 8. I'm too young for this, and so are you. So Butterfield 8, which sounds weird, is actually a phone number. And the promotional material for this movie 
said, the most desirable woman in town is the easiest to find. Just call Butterfield 8. In this movie, she starred with Eddie Fisher, not as her love interest. Uh, Luckily for us, he was her best friend in this. She famously appeared in a slip. Again, a slip is one of those garments that kind of cheats the censors. So there's this whole movie censorship for sexual content that happened in the 30s that the movies immediately started trying to find the limits of. And a slip, a slip is doesn't violate any of these rules. And so Elizabeth Taylor appeared in slips <laughs> a lot. <laughs> she was good at a slip. You know, some people are good in a room. She's good in a slip. <laughs> I think she also pushed the Hayes Code, which is what you were just talking about, which is an actual written things you couldn't do in movies, right to the outer limits, even with the roles that she accepted. I mean, a call girl, that doesn't, that's, that's sex. You don't talk about that in the movies, but you talk around it. So she was pushing the envelope as far as the Hayes Code is concerned, but people were flocking to her movies. So it was overlooked, I guess, is the best way to put it. And I cannot help but think that this was a bit of typecasting and art imitating life because mm-hmm. in this movie, Dina Merrill, who is the daughter of Marjorie Merriweather Post, we covered, I can't remember her episode number, played the love interest betrayed wife. This blonde, innocent looking woman played the betrayed wife. It's life imitating art. I won't spoil the cliffhanger at the end of Butterfield 8, which actually... Wait, when did you become so punny? Like, this is a new development in your personality. Also, I'm not saying I hate it. It's making me roll my eyes a little bit. So Susan see- is actually, what she's talking about is the fact that that comment deserves a groan if you've seen Butterfield 8. I'm interested in commentary about that. Okay, so Elizabeth Taylor, although the public loved it, hated her role in this movie. Hated it. I hate the girl I play, she said. (laughs) Nevertheless, maybe it was the scandal that put booties in theater seats. So it doesn't matter how she felt about it. People liked it and they flocked to the theater to see her. She might have hated it, but audiences and the Academy didn't hate it. She was nominated for an Academy Award and spoiler alert, She wins it. This is her first Academy Award. Even though she hated the whole thing. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, you know what? She's starring in a movie with her husband. Mm. Mm -hmm. Although the love interest of Eddie Fisher in this movie looks just like Debbie Reynolds. Don't tell me that wasn't intentional. Well, and the betrayed wife looks a lot like her, too. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Elizabeth Taylor, the brunette, represents the bad girl and all the blondes are the lady persons Hmm. isn't that reality (laughs) if i was actually a natural blonde i could stand on that (laughs) but anyway well and along came for elizabeth an opportunity some might say the opportunity an offer to play our old friend cleopatra for one million dollars making her the highest paid actress for a single role in movie history. But I just want to remind you that Mary Pickford signed a two-year contract for that amount in 1916. Just saying others had laid the groundwork. A million dollars in 1961 is approximately $9 million today. So $9 million for one role. That is not sneezing money. 
So she negotiated that million dollars. Basically, they called her and said, will you do this? And she's like, yeah, sure, for a million dollars. And they said, okay. So in addition to 10% of the gross profits and extra pay, if it went over time as far as shooting was concerned, her final pay for this movie in 1960 was $7 million. So it was well over the million dollars that she finally earned on this movie. Yeah, maybe she did pass Mary Pickford. But I'm just saying all these articles that are like, she's the first one that ever made a million dollars. I'm like, are we forgetting the like pioneers of cinema? But you have to remember, she also got this million dollar salary for one movie. Right. And an actor isn't going to get it for, for another two years. Marlon Brando got a million dollar contract two years later for Mutiny on the Bounty. But I see what you're saying. There's million dollars going around Mary Pickford, too years earlier. I know. It's just like we sometimes forget that people stand on the shoulders of the people that came before. That's all I'm saying. Truth. About that. True. True. (laughs) So Cleopatra, if you would like to listen to the real story, I highly recommend it. A podcast I know (laughs) called The History Chicks covered her. But it's basically in addition to the story of a woman's rise to power in ancient Egypt is for movie purposes, the story of a love triangle between... Cleopatra, and Julius Caesar, and Mark Antony, and possibly Elizabeth Taylor's own rather famous love triangle helped in the casting. Um, She's an award-winning megastar at this point with obviously a ruthless streak. Who better to play (laughs) Cleopatra? Um, There's a troubled history of the pre-production of this movie It had been noodling around for many, many years. And at one point, the producer wanted to cast the mixed race actress Dorothy Dandridge and had gone so far as to offer her the part. And she, who we have not yet covered, but we really should, a realist, said to him, you don't have the courage to defy the people that are going to try to stop you if you try to cast me. Mm. You know, that's what she literally said. And ultimately, you know, obviously he didn't have the courage. Also, the studio said, can't we just get a contract player? This is really expensive. This million dollars plus residuals plus blah, 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 blah. Let's just get a contract player. We have this girl. What's her name? They riffle through the papers. Joan Collins. Joan Collins. She looks so much like this lady here. Why don't we just (laughs) cast her? And... (laughs) I'm like, oh, no, because I was telling Susan earlier that when I think (laughs) of Elizabeth Taylor, I'm probably picturing Joan Collins because in the 80s, they had the exact same aesthetic. And that's when I kind of became TV people. They had another problem. The script, they confidently said, oh, we'll just use the script from the from the earlier Cleopatra. Um, Hello, people. The earlier Cleopatra was a silent movie. You know what most of the descriptions were? Like camera directions. <laughs> right. They were waving around this script from a 1917 Theta Barra version of Cleopatra. <laughs> there wasn't dialogue. There were, you know, angry gesture to camera, face left, you know, elephants come in or whatnot. We don't know. And so they had to completely rewrite the script and it passed from writer to writer to writer to writer. In fact, they started filming without a finished script. The set cost, and I wrote $7 signs. I don't know exactly what I mean by that. (laughs) A lot. The costumes cost a lot. The payroll was a lot. 
Rex Harrison uh, was cast as Caesar. You also might know him from his role as Professor Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady, in which he overtly does not sing during songs, which always irritates me. So reet, reet with my knife to him about that. Richard Burton was cast as Mark Antony. He was a Welsh Shakespearean stage actor. I mean, he was educated at Oxford. Looking back on his career, everyone seemed to give him an A++++ for his work in the theater. And I wish I could tell you that I was holding my hands in that cupped gesture that, like, choir people do, the theater. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Oh, I do, because I wrote wrote actor, but I wrote it actor. (laughs) And then he is pretty much... Given a C in film, just a C and a gentleman C at that. Like, we'll give you this because of your background. <laughs> but a C <laughs> is generous for you, my friend, in film. Well, Mr. Burton had his own street cred on Love Triangles. I would just like to say that right before he was casting Cleopatra, he had spent three years on Broadway as King Arthur in the musical Camelot. You know, the Lancelot, Guinevere. King Arthur love triangle, the most famous love triangle there's ever been. And the Kennedys loved this play. So did the public. The Kennedy White House was called Camelot because of this play. And Richard Burton, therefore, was a big deal. So lest you think he's a no-name, he is in the public eye, and he only is making a quarter of Elizabeth Taylor's salary. (laughs) Yes. How much do I love that? I'm making a little heart around the microphone. (laughs) (laughs) Evidently, he didn't have too high of an opinion of his co-star, of Elizabeth Taylor going into this thing. I am from the theater, and she is just some celebrity they pulled in for the box office. It's like, yes, my friend, that is how the movie business works. (laughs) (laughs) People are not going to go pay to see you, Richard Burton. I am reminded of an you know, is it a good commercial when I can't remember what product it's for? Tell me the commercial and I'll see if I can remember what the oh, product was. Okay. I think it's for Gatorade, but I'm not sure. It's like dudes playing basketball on a basketball court. And it's like, don't be fooled by what's in front of you. And there's all this like rap music or, or heavy metal. I can't even remember. And they're all like macho and like sweat and this and that. And then the director yells, cut. And one of the guys goes, I studied Shakespeare at Cambridge. And another guy goes angrily, I'm going back to my trailer. And like storms off the stage and it's like, drink the real thing. And then it's like, whatever it is. That brought absolutely no memory. So I guess I lose the game. My husband (laughs) says to me all the time, I'm going back to my trailer. When I make him the slightest bit irritated because of that commercial. So anyway, when, when he was so snitty about her credentials, that's what I thought of. It's like, I studied Shakespeare. I'm going back to my trailer. Like he was really not being generous in his spirit. But they got to the set and they started acting and he thought she was very beautiful and got a little bitty, 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 if you know what I mean. It was Thunderbolt (laughs) City and he got a little beside himself and she helped him through a tough, you know, actors, a good actor will always support their partner and it's more important to support your partner than, you know, to show off yourself. Um, Uh You learn that in improv class. It's like the group is better when you're all supporting each other. 
and she helped him through a tough shoot and he was impressed and things got heated and hotter and hotter and during a kiss scene like by the third take they were all about it and the director's like um do you guys care if i yell cut then there was a pause. <laughs> you know it's about time for lunch if anyone's uh interested or <laughs> and they capped at it and it was like ooh, something's happening around here richard burton did this with a lot of his co-stars he had been married for quite some time he felt that uh he had an open marriage and his wife knew that he would always go back to her and their children so him having a dalliance on set was nothing new but he's having it with Elizabeth Taylor. And in the words of Eddie Fisher, whatever Elizabeth wants, Elizabeth gets. So this production took a lot longer than it was supposed to. It was troubled by cost overrides, crew replacements, director replacements. Like I said, they had started shooting without a completed script. And so they were kind of like chasing their tails. Elizabeth Taylor's health has always been very bad. And she went down with a respiratory illness at least twice. And I read somewhere where she had two suicide attempts during the filming of Cleopatra. Did you Mm -hmm. read that also? Yeah, swallowed a handful of pills. Yeah. Over the course of her life, she had around 100 hospitalizations. And we're in no way going to be able to point out every time it happens. But her physical and mental state of being was never good, even since she was a child. Her pain from her National Velvet stunt that went wrong, her back injury, you know, kept coming back. There was pneumonia that kept coming back. And one of those cases of pneumonia she got while she was filming Cleopatra, but it was so bad that she was rushed to the hospital, had an emergency tracheotomy, you know, all over the newspapers. Elizabeth Taylor is dying or Elizabeth Taylor is dead. It was a big deal. This illness and her tracheotomy was highly publicized. So there was a thought that she might not come back and people were flailing like, oh no, this is like more than halfway done. What are we going to do? And then they thought, oh yeah, that one lady, Joan Collins is her name, right? Riffle through the paper again. (laughs) Let's call her and see if she can just backfill the rest of this movie. No one will ever know. Like people will know, but no one will ever know. Like that TikTok (laughs) backdrop. And they called her, and I am, again, sorry to say, there was some sort of casting couch shenanigans, and Joan Collins said that she would not participate in this, even for such a plum part as the pretend Elizabeth Taylor in Cleopatra, and she refused to go along with the shenanigans. I don't even want to go too much further into what they were asking of her, and so she held firm and didn't go in, and therefore they waited for Elizabeth Taylor to come back. Hollywood. Seems like a mess. What is happening with the Tom Cattery and nonsense? Well, Elizabeth Taylor was able to pull herself together and weekly got back on set. And remember that Academy Award we talked about that she got for Butterfield 8? She got that after she finished filming Cleopatra. And some people thought it was a sympathy Academy Award. Shirley MacLaine, who had also been nominated for a movie called The Apartment, she joked and said, I lost to a tracheotomy. But Elizabeth Taylor was there at the Academy Awards. She feebly walked on stage, accepted her award with a soft, whispery voice, you know, with a scar on her neck and chest. And that's when she won her first Academy Award. Now, even before Cleopatra had come out, I have to say this is the most talked about 
movie that, you know, like people were eagerly, Mm -hmm. this is pre-internet. You know, it happens a lot now and I think we're a little bit numb to it. But this movie and and what was going on during this movie was just like people love a backstage pass, you know, and they were getting Mm -hmm. all these like views. And one thing they were getting a view of is the romance between the two stars, both of whom were married. And when it came out to this great acclaim, the critics were kind of like, hmm, hmm. But it was a money spinner. I mean, it was a money spinner. The public loved it. They loved the thought of it. They loved going there and imagining the romance between the stars that was really happening in real life. They loved it. Now, unfortunately, it wasn't enough to save the studio from bankruptcy. And the studio tried to sue Elizabeth Taylor and Richard for quote, damaging their brand. And and the court's like, yeah, whatever. You made so much money from this. This is actually mismanagement of financials. This has nothing to do with their behavior. Right. Elizabeth Taylor herself called Cleopatra, and I quote, surely the most bizarre piece of entertainment ever to be perpetrated. (laughs) Is that how you feel about it? I'm just curious what your opinion on Cleopatra is. Uh, I think that a lot of movies from that era are too stilted for my modern taste. Uh, oh, that's such a delicate way to put it, because I was just going to say I've never made it through even, I've, though I've attempted several times because I fall asleep. <laughs> no, it should be noted that Vivian Lee also starred in Cleopatra and looks so similar to Elizabeth Taylor in her costumes. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I'm just like, did we need another one? Did we? This soon? I don't know. No, I didn't well, love it. <laughs> okay just checking well we may not have loved it but there was love for uh, elizabeth taylor and richard burton in this movie despite the bouncing back to his wife after every other affair that he had this one he bounced to divorce court and elizabeth taylor divorced eddie fisher richard burton divorced his wife those divorces caused a media frenzy like no one had ever seen before. In fact, Elizabeth Taylor's kids were given permission to use the garden hose on any photographer who came over the garden wall. Uh, <laughs> what a nightmare. Um, super fun, though. Like, it's like proto-video game. <laughs> Speaking of children, by the way, Elizabeth Taylor and her husband, Eddie Fisher, had begun the process of adopting a two-year-old German girl named Maria, given that Elizabeth Taylor wanted more children and due to the interference of Mike Todd and doctors could no longer have her own children. That adoption was actually not finalized until after her divorce. And also, nine days after her divorce, 32-year-old Elizabeth Taylor married Richard Burton on March 15th, 1964. And at the time, Elizabeth said, always a bride, never a bridesmaid. couple became known in the popular press as Dick and Liz, which, of course, Elizabeth thought blurred because if there was a name she hated to be called in this world, it was Liz, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> her brother had called her uh, Lizzie the Lizard when she was a kid, and she immediately hated it. 
I feel the same way about Susie, by the way. If anybody calls me Susie, they're not my friend. (laughs) Oh, no. Okay. Note to self. Anyone who's coming to London with us, don't call her Susie. That's right. You will Or alternately do and see what happens. I guess I don't know. Well, my brother will be with me and my brother's never called me Susie. So he will fight my battles. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Beck and Graham, chaotic neutral. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, where can I get a name tag or a hat with Susie on it? Um, I've never mentioned this in all the time we've known each other. Hmm. Wow. There's been one person that I allowed to call me that, and it was an old boyfriend's father because he was so cute. He could have called me, I don't know, pond scum, and I would have answered to it with a big smile. You know, in the vein of people and nicknames for Elizabeth, my husband has been on this 30-year quest to find a friend named Elizabeth who will allow him to call her Betty. And so I'm like, I should introduce you to Susan's (laughs) mother-in-law. No, she's not a Betty. She's a Betty Lou. That's her given name. Oh, dear. Well, Uh, but my brother's very first girlfriend in junior high was an Elizabeth who went by Betty. Betty Wheeler, if you're listening, call up. (laughs) Their lifestyle became the phenomenon. In fact, I think it eclipsed their actual careers. Burton, in fact, used an uncashed $1.25 million check as a bookmark. That's where we are. Between them, during their marriage, they earned $88 million. But here's the thing. They spent $65 million of it. Some was on charity. Some. But what we're looking at is houses, travel, art. There is a case of Elizabeth Taylor literally coming back home with a Van Gogh under her arm, climbing up on a chair to hang it over the fireplace like you and I might hang a poster we had bought at Pier 1. (laughs) Well, she's been collecting art for her entire career, just about. Because remember, her dad was an art dealer, so it's something she grew up with. So she's been amassing quite a collection, even up to this point. Well, and I know there's a lot of Van Goghs, but still, I don't have one. I don't have one either. (laughs) I'm like, the only original art I have is from an artist friend of my mom's who is a watercolorist. So I I got a lot of her stuff, but that's it. That's the original art. Besides the stuff that I made at the wine and paint classes that I just love to go to. (laughs) We should take pictures of those and put them in the lounge. Oh, I can definitely do that. But the thing that Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton are possibly the most famous for expenditure-wise are the jewels. Oh, uh, the jewels. There was the 68-carat diamond cut by Harry Winston himself. 68 carats. That's huge. And it's called the Burton-Taylor diamond. At least its name was changed to that. And you know it's serious when the diamond is named after you. Yes, definitely. For their first anniversary, he gave her a 33 carat one that's called the Krupp Diamond. And when they were out with their friend, Princess Margaret, she saw it and she said, that's the most vulgar thing I've ever seen. Can I try it on? And Elizabeth Taylor said, it looks a lot less vulgar on your own finger, doesn't it? Right. (laughs) That diamond actually was once stolen at gunpoint from its original owner and recovered by the FBI. It had a storied history. 
Also, she had a famous pearl called La Peregrina, once owned by many queens of Spain and the Bonapartes. At one point, they had thought this pearl had been owned by Henry VIII's daughter, Princess, then later Queen Mary I. Alas, that is actually a different pearl. Nevertheless, it was very famous and very expensive and had been around a long time until one day, oh no, Elizabeth Taylor lost it. She looked around and found the dog chewing on something (laughs) and had to retrieve the priceless jewel (laughs) of history from her dog's mouth. Okay, but knowing her as I do now, I can imagine her like almost being chill about it. I mean, first off, she's had pets her entire life. She's always been surrounded by animals. I don't think we even mentioned it. The horse that she rode in National Velvet, she was given that horse as a gift by Louis Mayer afterwards. And it was her horse, you know, until he passed away. So I can just see her like going, oh, is that my pearl? You bad dog. You know, just like it was her slipper or something. Well, it helps a lot to have $88 million. That's right. (laughs) It's a little bit less of a percentage of your income. It makes you very chill, I guess. (laughs) I wouldn't know. Me either. There was a rivalry between... Aristotle Onassis's gifts to his wife, the former Jackie Kennedy, and Richard Burton <laughs> with his gifts. And he thought, I can be as vulgar as that guy. And the race was on. It's not keeping up with the Joneses. It's keeping up with the Onassis's. <laughs> but they did some things that were like, you know, pretty normal. When Elizabeth was 39, she became a grandmother for the first of 10 times. And then she turned 40 and she had a big party like a lot of us do, except she had Princess Grace of Monaco, Ringo Starr, Michael Caine in Budapest. So it might not exactly be like our big party at the Peanut or wherever you went. Yeah, it's not like eight people at the Cheesecake Factory. No, no, not at all. So the Burtons loved hard and fought hard. Their fights were actually legendary in their peer group. And over the course of their marriage, I'm sorry to say they were increasingly fraught, possibly fueled on both sides by substances, alcohol on one side and pills on the other. Their 10-year marriage ultimately ended in divorce. Here's the thing, though. They spent a year apart and they sort of couldn't stand it, despite the, quote, delightful screaming matches um, that they had endured and just the conflict that had brought their marriage to an end in the first place. They were drawn back together as if magnetized and were remarried. When they separated the first time, Richard said of the separation, it was jolly well bound to happen. You know, when two very volatile people keep hacking at each other with fierce oratory and then occasionally engage in a go of it with physical force, like I said, it's bound to happen. So he's admitting what their relationship was like. It's right there. They fought a lot verbally and physically. Well, after another year of trying to make it work, they decided they were going to call it quits as amicably as possible. um, The disappointment was very, very great. And here's what Elizabeth said about that. I gave everything away, my soul, my being, everything. And I never want to be in love like that again. So Richard Burton um, was her true love. Nevertheless, five months later, she married husband number seven. Wait, what? Back up. 
Queen Elizabeth II was coming to visit Washington, D.C., and the British ambassador was hosting an event to welcome her. He asked his friend, John Warner, to escort his dear friend Elizabeth Taylor to the event. It was functionally a blind date. They worked fast. It was on. And they married later that year on his Virginia farm. And Elizabeth Taylor thought this was going to be Downton Abbey, functionally, you know, like she could have her <laughs> animals. She was going to have a country estate. Oh, hello, spelled H-E-L-L-E-A-U-X, you know. <laughs> she would have these delightful parties at her country estate. But instead, Mr. Warner decided to run for a Senate seat. And though Elizabeth Taylor was a lifelong Democrat, here she found herself on the campaign trail as the main draw in a Republican senatorial campaign. It wasn't just that she was now campaigning for her husband, a Republican, but she was forbidden to wear purple. The other Republican women and her husband said that it was too royal of a color and it reminded people of royalty. And so she kind of followed their costume advice and toned down her outfits to tweed. No purple. Also, her husband said, can you please wear like not that? And he gestured at her chest. (laughs) (laughs) And so here she is in later life saying, I devolve to little tweed suits. Me, the Mm -hmm. things you'll do for love. (laughs) He was elected. And then not only was he married to Elizabeth Taylor, he was actually more married to the Senate and his career and his job. Very exciting. Elizabeth Taylor, though, found her life as, quote, the little woman excruciating. And let me quote her again. And I'm going to leave out the words that I have to bleep just for ease of editing. (laughs) You were told what to think, when to say what you're supposed to think, and supposedly you don't have opinions of your own. I was independent before it was fashionable and found it very hard to keep my mouth shut. (laughs) In the background, also, she was deeply and more deeply addicted to prescription painkillers. Some of her childhood injuries had caught up to her. She had been taking two sleeping pills a day for decades, and it was getting worse and worse. And Mr. Warner chose his career. She chose hers. During a trial separation, she appeared on Broadway and won a Tony Award. All right. You know what? Let's just let this go. That's her side hustle is appearing on Broadway and getting a Tony. So, you know what? Let's just let's just let this go. I think we're fine. No, you know, no harm, no foul. It's time. I don't want to do this anymore. And they were divorced in 1982. Seventh husband, Arrivederci. They always stayed cordial, but we're closing the book on the Senate. The final nail in the coffin, as far as Elizabeth was concerned, is when John sold the farm. I mean, the house that she got into the marriage to have that Downton Abbey in Virginia lifestyle. He sold that farm and bought an apartment in the Watergate Hotel. And she had to get rid of her horses and her dogs and her cats. And she's like, no way. So she actually went and bought Nancy Sinatra's old house in Bel Air. So good for her. She had a place to fall into when they did get divorced. Sometimes opposites attract and sometimes they're just opposite. (laughs) (laughs) 
I got to give her credit, though. She wanted to change her life, you know? She had said at some point that after Richard, the men in my life were just there to hold the coat and open the door. All men after Richard really were just company. So, you know, she had this volatile, fiery relationship with Richard Burton. So she went sedate with John Warner. You know, she wanted to change her life. And she Mm. did. What she thought she wanted wasn't what she wanted. Right. After her divorce, she did star in another play with Richard Burton. And Elizabeth Taylor said in her later life that she might have married him a third time had he lived. He um, did end up dying a couple years after this, uh, before they had gotten around to getting married the third time. But it was always there simmering on the back burner that he was there. He was sort of perfect for her in the abstract. You know, they remained friends the mm-hmm. whole time. Elizabeth Taylor was hospitalized with something that she marketed as a gastroenterological problem and woke up in the hospital to find kids and friends standing about and thought, oh my, they're all here to see me. How nice. Oh, well, yes, but it was an intervention. They all had prepared statements to read as to how she was scaring them with her behavior and that she needed to get help and they loved her and would she please take this seriously, et cetera, one after the other. We've been talking about how Elizabeth had been turning to prescription medication and alcohol to self-medicate. During the Warner years, she was also turning to food to find comfort. And this is when you see pictures of her and she's wearing the caftans. This is that era. At this point, when the intervention happened, she had over 1,000 prescriptions written for her for sleeping pills, painkillers, and tranquilizers. She was under the treatment of three different doctors, including the most infamous of them being Dr. Max Jacobson, who was the drug dealer to the stars, as far as I'm concerned, prescribing prescription medications for things that people didn't have. Well, you're looking at, you know, Percodan like Tic Tacs, alcohol like water, topped up with sleeping pills every night. It Mm -hmm. was just, um, it was sort of spiraling out of control. So Elizabeth Taylor checked herself in to the Betty Ford Center, newly founded by the former first lady, Betty Ford. Somewhere I stumbled across this picture of Elizabeth, Liza Minnelli, and Betty Ford at Studio 54 in 1979. So they were all partying together. And Betty Ford got sober and opened this clinic. I just thought it was interesting that there they are at Studio 54, which was the spot to be seen at in the late 70s and early 80s. And then they're going to be seen at rehab. Well, I mean, you know, maybe you realize everybody realized they had a problem about at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. She described her experience as follows. The first night was one of the strangest and most frightening nights of my life, not to mention lonely, but I'm not alone. There are people here just like me who are suffering just like me, who hurt inside and out just like me. People I've learned to love. It's an experience unlike any other I've known. And then I would like to point some arrows to the following sentence. Nobody here wants anything from anybody else except to share and help. It's probably the first time since I was nine that nobody's wanted to exploit me. Oh, God, I am so, so tired. Wow. Honest. Betty Ford herself urged Elizabeth Taylor to go public. 
Elizabeth didn't go in secret. She didn't sneak in the back door to rehab. She went in the front door and she admitted that she had a problem and that she was going to learn how to take care of herself properly. And what she also did was put a celebrity face to rehab. That's huge for a woman who's her entire life, the publicity departments have been trying to make her life look so glamorous. You know, she's admitting that she's addicted to prescription pain medication and alcohol. Part of the reason that Betty Ford founded this center was she was increasingly angry at the rather dismissive way that the medical professionals of the of the era and decades previous had been cavalierly treating mental issues and substance issues. You know, we talked about this during the 1950s housewife episode. It was one of the highest levels of uh, drug addiction among the middle class that there's ever been in America during the 1950s. You know, everything was swept under the rug. Mother's little helpers will make it all go away kind of thing. Witness Dr. Jacobson writing prescription after prescription after prescription. Betty Ford and her employees there were working very, very hard to change not only attitudes toward people who were addicted to substances, but the way that the medical community addressed the problems that led people there in the first place. Mm. So I thought that was really good, not only dealing with the aftermath, but working toward fixing the cause. So yes, Elizabeth Taylor's procedures there made the New York Times. Elizabeth <laughs> Taylor said, you know, they're going to find out anyway. I might as well. You're right. Go, you know, go in waving my flag. She was the first celebrity to go in there, but certainly not the last. She came out rejuvenated and cheerful and was the best advertisement for the hard work that you did in the Betty Ford Center and how it would benefit you. It's an illness, said Elizabeth Taylor. Go get some help. And she lowered the shame factor and made it okay for people, celebrity or not, to ask for help. I think this is a good time to leave victorious Elizabeth. You know, she's on a high note in her life, and it looks like we're going to have to go to three episodes. My mind is totally blown. If you had talked to Susan of a month ago, she would be like, no, three episodes. No, no, we save those for people like Maya Angelou. But it looks like Elizabeth Taylor gets three episodes. Well, there's a lot to talk about from hot dog food fights to big diamonds to jumping horses to like, it's just a lot. <laughs> I know. I think there's been a lot because you and I pulled out different things. Right. Like if either one of us just went straight through on our own, it would have been one episode. But you and I saw different things in her story and there's so much out there. So it looks like the Elizabeth Taylor story is like one of her diamonds, just big <laughs> and sort of vulgar but who cares about that <laughs> no, no i kind of love that about her right i mean that's who she was and she was unapologetically herself i think the things that i love about her the most we're going to talk about in episode three but she had to live through all of this to get there right so we will see you next time for part three. Um, not unprecedented part three, actually, but um, surprised us both, frankly. Yeah. Thank you for listening today. Bye. If you liked what you've heard, please tell a friend or leave a review for us on whatever podcast you're listening to right now. You can catch us on our social media channels. That sounds so official. 
Beckett is on Instagram. I am on Twitter. And we're both in our Facebook private group, the History Chicks Lounge. We're also in a couple private groups for our upcoming tours. If you're going to be in London on June 25th, we will be having a locals meetup. So we'll link you up to that information in the show notes for this episode. And there are still a couple places open for our October tour of Boston and Newport. It's going to be glorious. It's the best time of year to be in New England, if you want my opinion. The leaves are turning. The weather is always so delightful. The crowds have thinned out a little bit. And we have an amazing tour planned for places that we've only been talking about on the show. Beckett and I are so excited for this. So again, there'll be a link to that in the show notes for this episode. Our break music is courtesy of James Harper of Harper Active. The song is called A Fork Where a Fork Don't Fit. And our end song is by Danny Fong called Taking a Chance on Love. Until next time. I thought love's game was over. Lady Luck had gone away. I laid my cards on the table to play Then I heard good fortune say They're dealing you a new hand today What a day So here I go again I hear hear the trumpets blow again I'm all, all aglow again Taking a chance, a chance on love. Here I slide again, about to take that ride again. I'm oh so starry-eyed again. Taking a chance on love. I thought the cards were a frame up. I never would try. But now I'm taking the game up And the ace of hearts is high Things are mending now I see I see a rainbow blending now We'll have, we'll have a happy ending now Taking a chance on love I'm walking around with a horseshoe in clover I lie, and brother Abbott, of course, you two better kiss your foot goodbye, bye-bye, I'm on the ball again, I'm heading heading for a fall again, I'm gonna give my all again, taking a chance in love with romance, Taking a chance, taking a chance, I'm in love with romance, taking a chance on love.